Today we continue our exciting study in Mark's story about who Jesus is. We're up to chapter 6. I love our longer readings, and today we get to look at two miracles that I'm sure, as you just heard, you may have heard about before. Before we look at the scripture, though, I'd like you to look at some pictures, specifically some maps. So where is Mark describing Jesus living? In the land of Israel. And where specifically? He was born in Bethlehem in the south, but then he was raised in Nazareth and then went up to Galilee. You can see it circled there named after a region and a sea that's right there. So on the next slide, you see many of the stories in the Gospels happen in, on, or around this lake. It's a freshwater lake. It measures about 10 miles wide by uh, 15 miles long. And uh, hopefully we'll see it appear in a moment. The interesting thing about the Gospels is that even though Jesus lived around Galilee, we all know that come Holy Week, he goes down to Jerusalem, down south to the Holy City, and that's where he dies and he rises, and he goes back to heaven, and it's the place to which he will return. But during Jesus' life, he lived in a city called Capernaum, about what, 11 o'clock, 11.30 on the clock of the Sea of Galilee. The story that we'll see today takes place a little to the right of that, around 12 o'clock, and then on the lake itself. Now, I just happened to be going there in May with my wife on a tour. I've done this for many years. Some of you have been on these tours, so if you're interested, send me an email. This week is the deadline. We've got a few places left. All right, sorry for the shameless plug, but some of you have been asking. If you take a look at the next slide, you're going to see some very amazing artwork. Our Chelton kids are going through the Book of Mark on Wednesday nights, and each week they become detectives and look for clues as they discover who Jesus is. So a few weeks ago, they were reading in Mark 4 about Jesus having power and authority over the wind and the waves. And while they were hearing the story, one of their leaders, Miss Jackie, guided them in painting pictures of the stormy sea and Jesus in the boat. Our kids learned that when we go through hard and stormy times, Jesus is with us and is in control. Isn't that great? So there were more than five. Uh, I just have pictures of five of these beautiful artworks. Has it changed? Yes, okay. So we'll wrap it up here. And then I will show you what it looks like if you were really there or if you had a satellite image and wanted to do a little 3D navigating so we are now looking from the north down to the south. The city of Capernaum is on the far right, 
and the place that we read about, the feeding of the 5,000, and Beth Seda is right where, kind of, um, can you see that road comes down there? And that's where the Jordan River enters from the north, goes into the sea, and goes out to the south all the way down to the Dead Sea. Now, the next slide will show you what it looks like with the green grass or, and the fields that are still there to this day. That's the beautiful thing about actually going there. It's kind of like it was 2,000 years ago. And the next slide will show you a picture of what it looks like when a windstorm begins to come on the Sea of Galilee. The amazing thing about the, the sea is that it's kind of um, the bottom of a, comb, of a cone where you have high mountains. You can see them over there on literally almost all the sides, the east and west. So it creates all sorts of heat and cooling and uh, dynamics of weather with moisture so that a storm can pop up anytime unawares. And that's part of the story here, our second miracle today. So today, let's take a look at these two miracles. First of all, in verses 30 through 44, the feeding of the 5,000. Now, just to let you know, one of these little trivia facts, uh, if you're ever on Jeopardy and they say something like this, you'll know the answer. What is the only miracle that occurs in all four Gospels? You got it. It's this miracle. And that says that it must be so important that everyone decided to include it. This story, of course, comes on the heels of what we saw last week when Pastor Jin talked about a birthday banquet of Herod the Great. Of course, that story was all about him. It was rather self-centered and deadly. Whereas today, this story is another banquet, not just for a few of the elite, but for 5,000-plus people. And the story begins with Jesus' compassion. Do you see that in verse 34? He sees all these people, and he feels something, some emotional movement of his heart that says, I want them to... Now, what would we think Jesus would want them? To be rich and famous, to be healed of all their diseases. But it says his compassion moved him, in verse 34, to begin teaching them many things. Far more important than what we think of as life's important things is knowing about God's kingdom from Jesus. And so the story goes on that Jesus was teaching them. I would have loved to have a little YouTube video of that or, you know, recording of it. The gospel writers do tell us occasionally these things that Jesus taught. But this took hours, and there were lots of people. And then the sun begins to set. And whether it's that or your stomach that tells you, hey, it's, it's time for dinner. Can we wrap this thing up here? You know how the story goes, right? Um, the disciples are saying, Jesus, we, we need to um, dismiss these folks because, you know, it's, it's time to eat. And uh, sure enough, this begins the story of 
Jesus' compassion that goes to their physical needs. Note, he had compassion, so he taught them. He had compassion, so he fed them. Don't divorce, in your mind, caring for people's spiritual needs and their physical needs. Both are important. And in this story, as Mark presents it, especially in writing it down to people who will read it later and they know their Bibles, they would know that this sounds a lot like things they've read before. So if you know your Old Testament, you know Moses in Exodus 16 has a lot of people who are hungry and they were complaining. We want to go back to the buffets in Egypt. And God says, all right, Moses, I will feed them. And you remember the story. What's it called? Manna, bread from heaven. And then, tucked away in the book of uh, 1 Kings, is the story of Elijah, the prophet, who went to a, a widow's home and did a miracle. And it says that the jar of flour that she used to make her pita bread was not used up. Isn't that interesting? But even more amazing is in the next book of 2 Kings, there's a story about Elisha the prophet, and this is what it says. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God, that is Elisha, 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain along with some heads of new grain. Give them some bread to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. But Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate, and they had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. <laughs> Three verses it's like you've got the feeding of the 100 before you have the feeding of the 5,000. So this cumulative effect of knowing about Moses and the manna and Elijah and Elisha, do you see what this is saying to people who are reading? Jesus is greater as a prophet than Moses and Elijah and Elisha. He is the final prophet from God, the divine Messiah who has come. The second miracle is about walking on the water or the winds. And it's amazing the way this story starts. It, it, you know, you read this, you say, huh? You, you read that again? It says, immediately Jesus made his disciples go into the boat. And he said, you go to the city of Bethsaida, and I'm going to dismiss the people, and I'll meet you there. So while he stayed, after he dismissed the people who, who he had just fed, he went up to a hill or a mountain, it's called there, to pray. Jesus did that in Mark's gospel three times. And then it's late at night, and Jesus is still there praying, but he's also watching. And he's watching out on the lake. Now, who knows? Maybe it was a full moon. Maybe you could see with the reflected light even of the stars. So it's, it's Jesus watching 
this storm come up, this quick storm that seemed to stay in the middle of the night, wind, and these professional rowers are trying their best to row and row to get one direction, and they're being pushed back to where they came. It kind of reminds me of going up a down escalator. Have you ever done that? I've tried to, I did it with our kids, I think. Probably wasn't too smart an idea, but uh, you, know, you don't get too, too far too fast unless you're really fast. But uh, these guys were trying to do the impossible. And the story says that Jesus saw them from where he was on the land, but then he started walking. He went out to them. So he went down on the land to the seashore, and he, it would look like he would start, you know, like we would, bathing, like swimming, you know, going in. Except his feet never hit bottom. The bottom was the water. He literally walked on the surface of the water. Now, that's something only God himself can do. The book of Job chapter 9 says, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Jesus literally did that in this miracle. But again, the surprising thing about this is what it says in verse 48. Because you would think it would say, Jesus made a beeline for the boat, and, you know, comforted them and said, peace be still, or something like that. But it doesn't say that. Did you hear that or read that? Verse 48, it says, He was walking on the lake, and he was about to pass them by. About to pass by them? I thought he was headed toward them. <clears throat> what is this all about? And once again, go back to the Bible that the Jewish people had, our Old Testament, that phrase, God passing by them, shows up twice in Scripture. Once, again, with Moses in Exodus chapter 33. Here's what it says. Then Moses said to God, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, but you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. There's a place near me where you may stand on a rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover with you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. See that? And what's even more remarkable, I know this is what Jesus was doing, because in verse 50, when he finally stopped passing and started coming, he said to them, hey, take courage, it is I. And in the Greek language, that is the sacred name of God in Hebrew. Hebrew, Yahweh, Greek, ego, me. It could be translated, it's me, I am. 
but it also is the name of God. I think it's a play on the words. And that's what Jesus was saying. So here in Moses' time, he was not allowed to see the face of God, and now God incarnate Jesus comes and says to his disciples, it's me. Don't be afraid. Take courage. I am with you. He clearly reveals his identity. God himself. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the creator. He is the ruler of all. Those are the the miracles. And there's much more to say, but wow. (laughs) This morning, I'd I'd like to, to just take one thing that really hit me, and it shows up in both of these miracles. And it's not so much about Jesus, but it's about his disciples. And that's who we are. And the thing that surprised me again is verse 52 after Mark describes Jesus saying, it's me, and the wind died down when he got in the boat. It says this. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Okay, so I'm thinking, so what did they not understand? What was there to understand about the loaves, the miracle of the loaves? Well, I mean, I don't think it's that hard to understand, right? You could teach it to little kids, and they could make paintings of it, and what what is it? Well, it's Jesus took five loaves, two fish, and suddenly everybody was fed. So, like, Jesus did a miracle. Jesus must be God. Or is there more? And I think there is more here. Because each story focuses on Jesus testing the faith of his disciples to see what they understood in the middle of the miracle. It wasn't just the miracle to feed a bunch of hungry stomachs. The miracle did that, yes, but it also was meant to be a mirror on who Jesus is and how Jesus' followers came to understand Jesus. So, again, let's go back to the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus told his disciples to feed this crowd of over, it's really more like 10,000, because if you go to one of the other Gospels, like Matthew, it says, the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. So I don't, I'm not sure how to calculate this. Let's just say many of the men were married, so they had their wives, and then they had one, two kids, three kids. I don't know. I'm sure there were singles there too, maybe some teenagers. So what number do you want to use? Do you want to use 8,000, 10,000? Let's just say 10,000. That's a lot of people to feed. All right, so let, let's, let's say we're in their sandals, and you know we're listening to Jesus all day. Stomachs are saying, feed me, and they say, okay, Jesus, we have a plan. 
let's stop the seminars over and let's just tell everybody to go to a nearby village or home and get some food because we you know we care about people and that's their plan that sounds reasonable doesn't it I mean uh, it's not like they had a big bank account there they uh, you know they're trying to think how, how would we ever no of course we wouldn't pay we we don't have enough money to feed no the only answer was bye everybody there's uh, McDonald's on the way home. If it's too far, you know, you, know, you know your roads. So hopefully, you know, we'll see you again tomorrow. And then Jesus says, and it seems unreasonable, doesn't it? You feed them. And in, in, in the Greek language here, it's uh, doubled on the word you, like you underlined. Not me. Not them, you. You feed them. That's, that, to me, it rubs me as like, uh, I should have used the word harsh, unreasonable. For sure, I know it caused them stress. Like, right? Because they start talking. And they start talking about real money. You know? Where they start to calculate how much it would cost, and they say it would cost about 200 denarii, or in the NIV it translates it half a year's salary. So again, what, what number do you want to put there? Do you want to say something like $25,000? Something like that? $25,000 from 12 guys who are following a rabbi, and they're just fishermen? Sounds impossible. I, I, I want you to see this. Just sit there for a minute. Like, hold it. Jesus, why are you, do, why are you egging us on here? Or why are you pushing our buttons? Or why are you uh, stressing us out with this proposal? We liked our proposal. And you are our master, so yeah, we'll do what you say. But... And Jesus simply said, how many loaves do you have? Verse 38. So it's like we go from Jesus' original plan to their plan, now back to Jesus' plan B. Hmm. And see, I want to say, well, Jesus, why didn't you just say this to start with? <laughs> Why all this? Uh... So he says, what have you got? And if you go to one of the other Gospels, remember it's, it's on all four Gospels, you can kind of piece the story together. There's a little boy who has five loaves of pita bread, you know, the round flat bread, and two fish that were either like salted or smoked or something like that. It wasn't sushi, okay? Uh, don't think of it as raw fish. And you know what happens then, right? In Jesus' plan, he says, all right, guys, uh, divide the crowd up here. We want some order. So like 50 or 100 or something, because you want rows where you can distribute the baskets and 
Then Jesus prays, and like a rabbi, he would pray the typical Jewish prayer that Jewish people still pray today. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread out of the earth. And then he divides the pita bread, the loaves. You know, I don't know, breaks them in half. Maybe breaks the fish apart, throws the bones away. I don't know, okay? But somehow, that just kept happening. Do you see how the miracle is not explained? It's not like we've got this paragraph on, it was amazing, suddenly fish appeared, or they fell down from heaven, or they jumped out of the Sea of Galilee. <laughs> it doesn't say any of that. It just says he divided them, and then they were all satisfied after they ate. And they were so satisfied, right, that there were leftovers. And you know, there's only leftovers. Usually, I was taught, clean your plate, right? <laughs> but if there's leftovers, it means, no, please, I can't eat anymore. 10,000 people. What a banquet, what a feast. And this story then is picturing for sure the new Moses, Jesus, God's prophet. Moses fed them with manna from heaven. Jesus feeds them miraculously with bread. But in John's gospel, Jesus, after this miracle, says, you thought I was just doing this to fill your stomachs, but actually I am the bread of life. So do you see what they must have missed? Remember, what did they not understand about the loaves? Jesus was not just in the business of making miraculous dinners for people. He was saying, just like I can feed your body, I can feed your soul. Just like I can give you a meal that lasts for a moment, so I can give you eternal life that lasts forever. Do we get that? When things don't satisfy us, but we keep looking for Jesus to kind of baptize our hobbies, or our pleasures and expect them to substitute for him? Nothing wrong with pleasures or hobbies or good things. Nothing wrong with bread and fish. But there's something much more satisfying. There's someone much more satisfying. But like our little puppy at home, we just got a puppy about two months ago. We're trying to train her. Josie is her name. And just yesterday, I think, actually this happens about every day, my wife and I will say, well, you know, we need to take her out. Maybe on a walk or for another reason, you know. So, all right, get her. <laughs> get her. Well, okay, come here, Josie, come here. Rum, zoom, rum, bum, runs all around the place. And as soon as you think, oh, okay, we'll trick her with a treat. With this hand, and then you grab her with that hand. And then you take her out, and she loves it. She doesn't want to come in. We've taught her to ring a bell when she needs to go out. So as soon as she comes back in, she rings the bell again. Not because she needs to, but because she loves going out. Well then, okay, let's go out. 
Here, let's put the leash on. Zoom, zoom. But that's the way I act when God says, hey, come here. Come here, I have something good for you. The second miracle. What, a, what about this one? You know, Jesus sees his disciples straining at the oars. He walks toward them. He intends to walk past them. Now, let's go in the boat with them. It's dark. They're sweating. They've been rowing for a while. The wind is against them. Maybe the water's splashing into the boat. And they don't even recognize Jesus. Right? Because they cry out when he gets near, it's a ghost! Oh, isn't that great theology? Right? From these followers of Jesus, now they're dipping into the superstition of whatever was around there. You know, that the evil spirits live in the dark, wet ocean or the sea. And this must be one that's come up and he's here to kill us or something. Just the opposite. Jesus was watching them. Now, get this. Jesus was watching them. Was what? Not saw them and boom, went. He was watching them. And in the middle of the night, it's probably from 3 to 6 a.m. Do you hear this? There was a delay. That's my point. He had been watching them. And he was walking, not running, not sprinting. He was walking. That means one foot in front of the other. You saw the pictures there. How long did it take to get from the mountain where he was to the water? How long from the water to the boat? I don't know. At least a half an hour. And finally, Jesus speaks, and he identifies himself as the Lord. And he climbs in the boat, and it's like a mirror. Now, listen, Jesus purposefully puts us, like them, into difficult situations that look impossible to, to solve on our own. And if you're in a situation today, let me just say this, that's harmful or abusive or illegal, you need to do everything you can to change that. I'm not talking about situations like that. But I'm talking about the way life happens to us and we feel like our hands are tied and our feet are tied and nothing can change. We can't do it. And in Jesus' compassion, in his compassion, he wants us in that situation that he gave to us to realize that we cannot solve it on our own. We can't. And that only when we look to Jesus in faith can we have any hope in our hearts, any peace that passes understanding. Even if your faith is so tiny like a grain of mustard seed. You see, that's what God is doing in your life. Right now. Or if you don't know it, 
If you don't know you're in the middle of the storm, maybe the storm is coming on Tuesday. I don't know. But it will come. Maybe that hunger in your spiritual belly isn't right now, but it will be gnawing at you. And like A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Not how much money you have, not your status in life, not if you know, you've got a great job or you're in school doing well or any of those things that we think, oh, we're good. It's what you think about Jesus that determines everything. And our frustration in waiting, in waiting, is a sign that we're not satisfied with God alone. We want the solution on our terms, right? We like our plan. Instead of wanting God on his terms. So I think we need to learn that delay is an opportunity for either frustration with God or dependence on God. And we shouldn't be surprised about this, right? It's the pattern we see in the Old Testament. Remember the story of the Red Sea? You know, when they came out of Egypt? Beeline to the promised land. Well, not exactly. There's a big body of water called the Red Sea. Not going to swim through that one. Not going to walk on that water. We're going to die in that water because we got the Egyptian army behind us pursuing us. And what did God do? He let them feel their sense of need before he stepped in to change it. What about the story of the cross and the empty tomb? Jesus was betrayed, hated by the Jewish leaders, crucified by the Romans. Oh yeah, so much for this great so-called Messiah. That's what the two men thought, right? When they were walking and Jesus came up to them. Hey, why are you guys so sad? Well, what, you didn't hear? And then there's the empty tomb. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we always carry around in our body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. So my friends, uh, our frustrations and disappointments and unanswered prayers, that's normal. That's the normal rhythm of being a Christian. And very recently, one of our Chelton family has experienced a very serious illness. With her permission, I tell you, some of you know the story. She was teaching in her first grade class, experienced some balance issues, some vision issues, said, I better go see a doctor. Doctor said, you better go to the hospital. Hospital said, you better have an operation. You have a brain tumor. She was about ready to retire at the end of the school year. And the report came back this week that it's the kind of cancer that you don't survive. You can prolong life from it, sure, and we hope and pray that she will have many years 
but it's terminal. Now, how would you respond to that? She said to me, things have happened so quickly, I can't even... I was in my classroom two weeks ago teaching little kids. And now, she said, I just did a video for those kids telling them about my situation. Wow! Is that the way you would dream your retirement years would be spent? So what's happened? She now has a passion that those kids, those teachers, her neighbors, her friends that don't know Jesus will see what Jesus is doing in her desperate situation and find the same kind of peace and hope that she has in her heart. And our church is rallying to her cause. I just say, Lord, wow. And some of you are enduring difficult marriages, children who break your heart, jobs that you maybe can't wait to quit if you could. Or maybe there's that pain in your body that just drains you each day. Enduring your time of waiting on God, I'm asking you, please remember that delay does not mean absence. God's seeming absence is only in your mind. He's really there, walking on the water near you. Your waiting for change is your opportunity to learn more about our Lord, His grace, His compassion, His nearness, His peace, His forgiveness, His purpose for your life. Seeing Jesus in the middle of the storm is more important than having Jesus end the storm. And that's easy for me to say. But that's what Jesus wants us to believe and know and live. And now we have an opportunity to see Jesus even more through the Lord's Supper and receive his grace once again.